0: Welcome to the Two Cities podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 118. On this episode, we're talking about Great Guides to Sex with Sheila Ray Grégoire. Sheila Ray Grégoire is the author of two new books, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, both published by Zondervan. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Sangaling Ng, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So we had a lot of fun in this conversation. She, Sheila is highly informative and tells us a lot of truth bombs, as she calls them, based upon research that she's done, but also just super straightforward and, and hilarious. It was, this was such a wonderful conversation. I had a lot of fun during it. What were some of your takeaways about our conversation with Sheila, Logan, and Grace?
1: As someone who didn't grow up reading stuff like Every Man's Battle or Every Young Man's Battle or all those really weird gods to anti-lust or whatever, I was fascinated by some of the stuff that uh, Sheila described that, that are in those books, which are just hard to believe. Uh, and I feel like for those who have read it and maybe forgot, it will be helpful to have some perspective and to hear uh, Sheila kind of pick out Uh, some of the really odd specifics that are there. And I was really encouraged, though, that we were able to hear how her book counters those and responds to those and hopes to cultivate a better sexual culture in the church. So you have a lot to look forward to. It's quite the wild ride.
2: Yeah, I loved having Sheila on again. And um, she's just hilarious. (laughs) I was like laughing so much that I was crying in a lot of these. In in a lot of conversations, so if anything, just listen to it because it's like she's so funny. But on the other side too, I think I just really appreciate her humility in like being willing to rewrite her book because there's things that she doesn't agree with that she had previously written ten years ago. So I think that takes like a whole lot of yeah, like self-awareness and just confidence like in her own self and in her own growth and. I think that's a model you know that we can have as like in the evangelical world because we don't see that happen a lot of times a lot of times we see people just get defensive um and so yeah i'm just grateful for her willingness to um revise things and grow
0: and just as a bit of a content warning this conversation is very explicit um so do keep that in mind as as you continue with
2: the episode
0: but with with that here's our conversation with sheila ray Guiguar. Well, Sheila, thanks so much for joining us again. We're really excited to have you back on the pod.
3: Yeah, great to be here.
0: So you've got two books coming out this year. You've got a, a book that's a, a, a revision of a previous one that you did, the kind of a 10th anniversary edition, uh, mm-hmm. and another one that is uh, kind of more geared towards men. So the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, and now the Good Guy's Guide to, to Great Sex. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the decision to to revise and also create a new sort of companion volume?
3: Yeah, well, when I was on um, Two Cities last time, I was talking about my book, The Great Sex Rescue, which was based on our survey of 20,000 women. And as we did more research and started looking at um, the results of our survey and what seriously wrecks sex for women... I realized that I said a lot of things back in 2012 that I no longer agree with, you know, even though we did create a 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality and the original good girls guide would have scored like 46 or 47 out of 48, but I still didn't like it. And I wasn't comfortable with something that I couldn't stand behind anymore. So um, my publisher really wanted the book for guys and I begged them to let me rewrite the book for women too.
2: Yeah, thanks, Sheila, for sharing about um, your book revisions. And I really appreciate um, just your humility and recognizing, you know, like the things that you may have written in the past you don't necessarily agree with now. My question is, where do you think that process fits in like the whole evangelical sphere? You know, this is actually something that seriously bugs me because
3: it shouldn't be a big deal to grow. Like, isn't that the point of the Christian life that we're always growing? And isn't that the point even of knowledge? Like that we learn more. And when you know better, you do better. And and that that should be a good thing. <laughs> and and yet, we I've spent so much time in the last few years pointing out where things have been wrong in a lot of our bestsellers. And people instead of saying, yeah, you know, I really didn't say that well. I should probably revise it. Have instead threatened to sue us. <laughs> and it's like it's not a big deal. I'm not asking them to do anything. I haven't done myself. Like I pulled two of my oldest books. I've rewritten two of my best-selling books, and you know, including the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex. I've taken down a ton of blog posts. It isn't difficult. It just is a matter of integrity. And isn't that what it should look like if we claim to be followers of Christ?
0: I'm curious if you're willing to share, where where are some of those places where you felt like it was really important to shift uh, the way you talk about these topics?
3: I think the biggest one is gender essentialism. Okay. So in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I did acknowledge, and I did actually spend quite a bit of time talking about how women could have the higher sex drive, for instance, which was cool. And um, out of the 13 books that we analyzed for the Great Sex Rescue, not a single one of them said the word consent. In the original one, I did. I'm so proud. I actually did when we went back and looked. So yay. But what I also did was I was very much men are like this, women are like this. Right? So so men need sex in a way that women can't understand. Um, usually like women really are into the emotional connection, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a lot more nuanced than that. And we need to get away from this men are like this, women are like this. And we need to talk about What if you're in a marriage and your partner, your spouse is like this, here's how to handle it. You know, but it isn't always a gendered thing. And the more we talk about it being a gendered thing, the more we can cause some harm in relationships.
1: So can you help us myth bust this uh, for a moment? Because the um, the the refrain, uh, you know, men have, you know, struggles with lust that women can never understand is often weaponized against women. To mm-hmm. dress and act in a particular way uh without uh good explanations, right It's just to say you don't understand how hard it is for men, so like mm-hmm. I just can't communicate it to you, so please just you know barely exist uh, <laughs> in, in any in any way, uh you know cover everything in your body and make sure you're not noticeable, blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that kind of refrain that this is inexplicable, it's inaccessible, it's, you know, it's a phenomenological thing that I can just say to you is real, but you don't understand is a kind of dangerous myth. So help us, help us bring that nuance that you're, uh, that you're rewriting into your book. Yeah. Other
3: than the fact that it's just fundamentally untrue. and that <laughs> So um, nice. there's two really recent meta-analyses. One, I believe, in 2019 and one in 2021, where they looked at... Uh, a ton of the MRI studies about women and the visual nature and women's arousal and arousal non-concordance and things like this. And what they found, and this is a major oversimplification, so please forgive me, (laughs) but there is not the brain differences that we've been told when it comes to women's visual nature. Um, Women and men physiologically react basically the same to to stimuli. Now it's not the same stimuli necessarily, but they do get physiologically aroused visually. The difference is women are less likely to report the subjective feeling of arousal, but physiologically they are aroused. So, and then there's, there's other analyses which show different things too. And when they actually look at the brain, there are not, most of the differences between men and women are actually differences that relate to brain size simply because men are larger. And when you have a brain that is larger then the structure has to change to accommodate the larger nature of the brain. And when you look at men's brains and women's brains that are the same size, you do not see differences really. So it's it's not a gendered thing. So even though we have been told this ad nauseum that men are visual in a way that women can never understand, the research just isn't there. Um, What we do know is that men and women are socialized very differently. And and that's probably why women don't report the subjective feeling of arousal, even when they've got probes up the hoo-ha showing that they are aroused, right? But you know, like, um, and, and again, I'm not trying to say that men aren't visual, but if you look at women under the age of 30 who have grown up in the girl power movement, they will tell you they're visual as well. Women my age won't. Like I didn't know what a six pack app was until my teenage daughter told me. It just wasn't a thing when I was a kid. Like we had Tom Selleck with the chest hair and stuff, but like that's it. All right. So, like, I didn't even know what a six pack was, but my my 13 and 15 year old girls did because they grew up in the generation where women were encouraged to be visual. I did not. And I think what's happened is a lot of the evangelical authors writing into the sex sphere are all boomer men <laughs> and they have no idea <laughs> what women are actually experiencing. And so we are seeing a huge shift in demographics and in, in the different generations. Um, so that's the preamble. I hope that answers like the academic side for what we looked at was, was we asked guys, okay, so we, we, we did 20,000 women for the first study. We did a bunch of men, a couple thousand men for this study. And we said, do you have a daily struggle with lust? Because we're told, right? Lust is every man's battle. And 75% that yet reported that yes, they did. Okay. So not, not hundred percent. So already it's not every man, but it's still a lot. Well, then we then we really drilled down and we presented them with a bunch of different scenarios and we asked and then we gave them a bunch of different options of what they would do in these scenarios. You know, there's a pretty waitress. There's a mom bending over a car seat. There's all these different things. And we pulled the scenarios from the book, Every Man's Battle. So
1: it's <laughs> just wow, that guys, that that's <laughs> cheeky. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, we even included masturbating in a car as one of the options because they did too. They made it sound uh, like this seriously was normal. in that
1: book? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, that it's <laughs> that
3: normal to masturbate in a rental car outside a gym watching women walk in and out. Yeah. No zero. Zero out of the several thousand men who took our survey reported that they would. But every re- man's battle wh- presents this as normal. Sorry, what's this? Why
1: a rental car?
3: I don't know. This thing <laughs> is so oddly so specific. specific. <laughs> it is oddly specific
1: blue a blue rental car from enterprise
3: <laughs> when you're that specific, <laughs> will really get it you is, going yes okay like okay. steve Arderburn. that was a little bit too specific anyway um
1: <laughs> he's telling on so himself okay anyways <laughs>
3: <laughs> so we presented guys with all these different scenarios all these different options in these different scenarios and of the 75 percent who said that they lost struggle with lust Um, Almost half of them would not lust in any of our scenarios and do not watch porn. So it's like, do guys actually have a struggle with lust? Or is it that we have taught men to equate noticing a woman is beautiful with lusting? And so guys think they're lusting all the time, even when they're not
0: thanks for that sheila that is uh, that is remarkable and 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 super insightful too. I really appreciate that, but I'm curious um, you've kind of already begun to do this uh, in telling us a bit about how your book on guys relates to every young man's battle and every man's battle or, or those those collection of books. Um, could you say more about what differentiates your your book uh, in relation to those ones?
3: The main problem with every man's battle and all of the books in that series, is that it equates male sexuality with the objectification of women. And that is never what Jesus did. And so what we're trying to do in the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex and the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex is let's build healthy sexuality from the ground up. What does it look like to build a sex life which is mutual, intimate, and pleasurable for both? Where both people matter, where both people can be vulnerable with each other, where intimacy can really flourish, where it's not about just an entitlement to sex and sex is not seen as just a physical release or I get to use you for my benefit, but it's instead seen as an intimate experience and how can we build that so it's really highly practical. Like we go into a lot of detail in like the sexual response cycle, because a lot of guys don't understand that. (laughs) and You need to understand that if she's going to feel good. Um, But also like how to get over this pornified mindset, um, the pornified style of relating and how to really experience intimacy that's life giving.
2: Yeah, I think that is something I really appreciate about your books. um, Sheila is like you focus on that relationship and that mutuality between both the husband and wife and how they both need to experience, um, pleasure. And that's, that's within, uh, commitment and how those things like go hand in hand. Um, and I like how you present the whole like growth mindset of it's about gir- like journeying together and learning together, um, through the like marriage and through the decades. And I think something that I really appreciated too, was, uh, just like the stories that, uh, you share in your books of like people who like, you know, they don't figure some of this out until like maybe year 10 or 20 of their marriage. And so I, for me, like I'm in my like almost sixth year of marriage and I'm just like, okay, this is good to know. Like there's a lot of room for growth, you know? And so um, what are some things that you would recommend to talk to engaged couples in like their premarital counseling. Cause I never really like learned this in premarital, you know? And so I'm just wondering what you would suggest that they talk about or explore.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another truth bomb that a lot of people aren't going to like. <laughs> so we looked at couples where they only ever had had sex with each other um, and we controlled for abuse. So that wasn't a factor. And We looked at couples who had had sex before the wedding and couples who had waited for the wedding, the wedding night or honeymoon or whatever. And if you wait for marriage, she is 25% more likely to experience vaginismus which is a sexual dysfunction pain, pain during sex. You know, the muscles of the vaginal wall contract, become tight and penetration is painful, if not impossible. And evangelical women experience this at twice the rate of the general population. So this is a serious thing. And this is one of the reasons. Now, I am not trying to argue that everyone should have sex before marriage. That's not the point of why I'm bringing this up. But there is something seriously wrong (laughs) with the way that we're preparing people. Because, um, and and I think it comes from just asking the question, okay, if you have sex before marriage and you were planning on waiting, but you end up not waiting, why did you have sex? And it's probably because you watched a romantic movie and then you're making out for like several hours (laughs) and then stuff just happens, right? And that is not what happens on the wedding night. Like you get to the hotel room, you've had the longest day of your life, you haven't slept in a week, you've had the most stressful few months of your life. Often exams were like last week, and now you know school is over, and it's just, it's so stressful. And you get there and now you're supposed to do it. And it's just a really big transition. And that's a huge amount of obligation to put on someone. And it's often really awkward, and there's not the lead up. And so what we try to tell people is. Forget all of the expectations. Okay, just throw out the expectations and think about a threefold aim when you get married. And so the first is just getting comfortable. Just feel comfortable with each other. You know, just get naked, play scrabble naked if you need to. I don't care, but like just... (laughs) just get comfortable okay then work on her her arousal because his arousal is pretty easy like let's work on hers figure out how to get her aroused how her body works even reach orgasm first from some other way and then and only then try intercourse and if we do that things will go a lot better and um For some people that can happen in a night and for some people it takes a week and for some people it takes several weeks or longer, but it doesn't matter if you do it in that order, you set yourself up for such a better sex life. But if you rush intercourse, it can really backfire. And that's what a lot of couples, a lot of Christian couples have found because we have a 47 point orgasm gap, by which I mean that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a sexual encounter, but only 48% of women do. And okay this is this 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 stat really made me laugh and then cry. Okay. So when you look at women who frequently reach orgasm and we ask men and women does the husband do enough foreplay? Over 90% of both men and women say yes. But if she doesn't frequently reach orgasm, 71% of men still say they do enough foreplay, but so do like I think the number is 56% of women. So it's like enough for what? Like, what is our measure? (laughs) You know? Oh, he tried, but you know, she's just broken. Like it just, there's something wrong with her. And so what we're trying to say in the good girl's guide is ladies, like you matter, your sexual pleasure matters. And it's okay to want something. And the guys book, we're trying to say like, don't be a jerk. Like, (laughs) like you can rock your wife's world, but you need to consider her. And so can I tell you the story of Tracy and Doug? I like the Tracy and Doug story. I don't know if you guys have read the book, but let's imagine a couple and they've been told their whole life by all these Christian marriage counselors that what Tracy really needs in order to be happy in marriage is to go out to a restaurant once a week to eat. And this is just absolutely necessary for her marital satisfaction. So Tracy and Doug head to a restaurant and they they order their food and they're having a wonderful conversation and Tracy's appetizer of French onion soup arrives and she's eating it, and it's amazing. But nothing's for there for Doug, you know. And then the waitress brings her steak with peppercorn sauce and asparagus and a baked potato, and she's getting the sour cream on there. And she's eating her steak, and it's a perfect medium rare. And she's like declaring it delicious, but nothing comes for Doug. And they keep talking about their dreams for the future and for their kids. And then Tracy's molten lava cake comes. And this is amazing. And she's digging in and she's ooing and aahing. And in the middle of this, Doug's chicken wings arrive. His appetizer arrives. And he eats two chicken wings. And then Tracy stands up and says, that was an amazing dinner. I love doing this with you. And then she heads to the door. And Doug follows her looking back at the chicken wings that are still on his plate, and they leave. And how much do you think Doug is going to enjoy going out to a restaurant? You know, but they faithfully do this every week for like 10 years, And how's Doug going to feel? And yet how many women have been doing that with sex? And what we're told is, but you don't actually need pleasure. All you really get out of it is the closeness. That's all women really want anyway is the closeness. (laughs) And it's just, that's what we've been told. And it's like, no, (laughs) she needs more than chicken wings.
1: What what are maybe a few, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to itemize them or or ask how you would itemize these. A few things that maybe couples can practically do to prepare for this transition from, if they're waiting uh, to have sex from no sex to sex after marriage. Does that include like, understand, like learning about each other's anatomy, (laughs) like reading, like reading literature, like the stuff that you produce, like, Uh, but also like emotional intimacy, like, like what, what kinds of like Mm -hmm. practical, like interpersonal, but also like knowledge uh, sources should they engage with uh, Mm. to make this transition less abrupt and not horribly unenjoyable for (laughs) women?
3: (laughs) Yes. You know, what I think is so funny is often in marriage counseling, um, they'll have, they'll have couples say, well, what do you want? What do you want to do in the bedroom? And we've spent, these kids' entire lives and these young adults' entire lives telling them don't think about sex and now they're supposed to say what they want. Like, how do they even know? And so it's like, I say, get rid of all those questions. Forget about what you want because if you're waiting, you're not going to know anyway until you try, okay? And the thing is you think you might like, like everyone thinks they want to have sex in a barn. Nobody wants to have sex in a barn. That's really scratchy. Or like sex in the shower is just not that comfortable. But you think this is like the epitome of <laughs> like, erotic stuff. Okay. So it doesn't really matter what you think you want before you try it. What really matters is um, do you actually know how your own body works? And do you know how the other person's body works and learn the sexual response cycle? That's the, that's one of the biggest things we go over this in a lot of detail. Um, Cause there's several different stages. You know, there's excitement where you're just warming up. There's arousal where you actually have physiological signs of major arousal there's plateau and then orgasm and then resolution and somewhere in there is desire like the the, where you actually want to have sex and some people the desire comes first and some people it's sort of between excitement and arousal like you don't actually want to have sex until you start warming up okay and that's okay that's just two different kinds of libidos the problem is excitement desire and arousal look almost the same for guys But they're very different for women. Those are three very different things. And this isn't a matter of whether you're high drive or low drive. This is just physiology. Okay. And so if you, if you start right out for the erogenous zones at the very beginning, it feels like a pap smear. Like if she's not, if she's not aroused at all, like you may as well be giving her a pap smear. And so it's like learning how to how to work with her body and teaching her how to listen to her body, those are really important skills.
1: So you talk about the high drive, low drive. Have you done uh, interviews with people's like perception? I guess I'm interested in what people perceive about Mm -hmm. themselves or theologically about high drive, low drive. Or if there's like distinctions between that within couples, like Mm -hmm. does tension arise and how can those things be like resolved, like practically (laughs) like.
3: Yeah, and there, there, there's certainly, this is one of the biggest areas of tension is how often do we have sex, right? Like that's, that's one of the biggest things that couples fight about. And there is, you can think of it in terms of high drive, low drive. You can also think of it in terms of spontaneous versus responsive libido, as Emily Nagoski talks about in her books. Um, but you know, it's all relative, right? Like, <laughs> like whether or not you have the higher drive completely depends on what your spouse's drive is. So it is all relative. Um, I will tell you what studies found because you guys appreciate studies. So I appreciate that you guys appreciate the peer reviewed stuff. Um, we're nerds. Uh, Oh, interestingly, the, here's here's a total aside of the 13 evangelical bestsellers that we looked at. Um, do you know how many journal articles were in the footnotes for those 13 books? 11. That's not 11 per book. That is 11 over the 13. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, um, one thing that, that our study found, um, and, it, and many other peer-reviewed studies have found this too, is that frequency is less of a, less of a reliable um, marker for marital satisfaction than feeling emotionally close during sex and sexual satisfaction. Like, like her frequently orgasming the quality of the sex is more important than the frequency. So we often think frequency is the biggest deal, but it actually isn't. And the other thing is that um, when you're not having sex very often, it looks like having sex once a week contributes huge amounts to marital satisfaction, but every increment after that does not contribute quite the same amount. So it's like once a week seems to be the magic number. If you have sex at least once a week and more is better, but you know, at least once a week, that tends to be good marital satisfaction. But if you're less than that, it's often a problem. <laughs> um now, of course, it depends on the couple, you know, if it, it depends on if you're in exam season, it depends if you're stressed at work. It depends if someone's a trucker and they're gone for like six weeks, you know, six days at a time or whatever. Um, so in every couple, you need to negotiate that yourself. but um, those do seem to be the magic numbers, but the other thing is like, frequency is the symptom it's not the main deal so what we found is that when she frequently orgasms when there's high marital satisfaction when she feels emotionally close during sex when there's no porn use and where there's no sexual dysfunction frequency takes care of itself so often we're fighting about frequency when really there's something else going on we should be paying attention to
0: so a lot of the uh, gaps that we've been discussing sort of have to do with heteronormative couples. I'm curious if there's research that you're familiar with that would talk about some of these issues uh, in, in, in non-heteronormative uh, relationships.
3: We did put in a footnote in Great Sex Rescue. It is not in the text, but yes, um, the largest scale studies that we could find of the orgasm rates of different couples found that women in same-sex relationships orgasmed at the same rate, basically almost as men did in whatever relationships they were in. So the only time that women had a significantly lower orgasm rate was when they were in a heterosexual relationship. So it's not that women can't reach orgasm. It's that there's, and and I I do think that a lot of the issue is that we tend to judge the male experience of sex as being the right one. And so then she seems like she's broken or not sexual because he he can orgasm, you know, four times as fast as she can in general. Um, He enjoys intercourse. Most women who orgasm do not do so through intercourse alone. Um, And he tends to be the more spontaneous libido. And so both of them can look and think, well, she is not sexual when actually women are capable of multiple orgasms and we're capable, we don't have a a refractory period, so we can keep going. So it's not, so who do we think is like the most sexual God created women with a body part where the only purpose is pleasure. So I don't think it's that you know, women aren't as sexual. It's just that we experience things differently. And so we need to stop feeling like she is broken when she doesn't conform to his experience of sex.
2: So I'm curious to know, like for single people and people who may have are single, like beyond than what, you know, they wanted or expected, like, like how do they explore their sexuality like in a healthy way as a single person mm-hmm.
3: you know this is not my area of expertise and I I really don't you know the, the question often comes up about masturbation like is masturbation okay and I you know, <laughs> porn use is not because porn use contributes to sex trafficking if, if for no other reason than the justice issue you can't use porn um I would love to do some surveys. on on this, but I honestly haven't. And so I don't I don't want to make a, a proclamation about that. What I would say is this: I think we need to think more in Christian spaces about a Christian sexual ethic that applies whether you are single or married, because it's there. And yet, our the way that we talk about sex, it all we really say is don't have sex until you're married, and then once you're married, you can have sex as often as you want. And that's not really what we should be saying. Like I would like to see a Christian sexual ethic which says we need to honor the dignity in other people always. And our sexuality is a way in which we physically express intimacy, but our under un, our underlying need is always intimacy. Right? Jesus never had sex, but he had intimate relationships and meaningful relationships. And what sexuality does is it points us to this desire for intimacy and for deep and close relationships and if we can be exploring that whether we're married or single you know how do we how do we pursue Um, intimate, close, vulnerable relationships with others appropriately? And how do we honor the dignity in others? And if you're honoring the dignity in others, then you're not going to use them sexually when you're single. (laughs) You know, you're not going to push beyond someone's boundaries, but also when you're married, you're going to honor your your partner. You're not going to see sex as an entitlement. And so this is something which applies whether you're married or single. And I wish we could start framing things that way.
1: I'm interested in the, if you can speak to the kind of cultural factors. Uh we we maybe position um your book or your two books uh in relation to every man's battle and there's so there's also an every young man's battle is this I didn't grow up with this stuff. So yes. okay I didn't know that. Was that afterwards?
3: Does every young man, mean
1: like like teenager or does young mean like
3: it, it's it, it's supposed to be for teenagers, but it's the grossest okay. thing you'll ever it's way worse than the adult one. It's oh, actually, groom, it's grooming kids to be sex addicts. Like it's, it's truly awful. Okay. It's basically well- <laughs> they, they brag about their porn problems. They tell guys where to find porn. If you don't use porn, like, it's just weird. It's like, awful. I didn't want to use porn. And so I found that you could look at department store catalogs and you could look here and you could look here. And my favorite kinds of porn were the girls gone wild, which isn't consensual by the way. And they would explain it in detail. And um, they, they called this woman like, uh, Betty B J Bowers, um, because she gave blowjobs a lot, and like, and they and they said, well, they called they called this guy who was getting blowjobs from multiple women as living in paradise. Like, it was just, it was so revolting. I mean, I can't even believe it. Anyway,
1: okay, okay. So on that, that note, f- so on yes. that note, so on that note, building off of this absolutely crazy book, what are just some? I, I'm just trying to understand the. How, how did we get to the point where that book is a bestseller, right? So was it that this book played into kind of pre-existing myths or did that book just like create these myths and, and now you've, you've uh, helped kind of spearhead it in a new way addressing that this is a massive problem? Um, and how, how is it that this has continued uh, for so long and has gone, and, and for so long went uh, not widely or not loudly maybe, or not effectively challenged. Uh, I mean, other than like the obvious, like this is obviously wrapped up in like weird kind of cultural misogyny, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of it. Um, but maybe more like, I'm just trying to understand like how a book like that becomes so prevalent and so influential and so rooted and then it just stays as this default and like you have pastors recommending it to 13 year olds with a book that's like hey here's this book that tells you you can go like look at department store catalogs like i'm just what i'm just trying to understand the like broader cultural factors something about the history of like christianity in, in america like i mean maybe that's too broad of a question and impossible to answer but like it's just so it's just such a perplexing thing to think about like Mm-hmm. from this side of it that I mean, you've been you because you've you've uh because you spent so much time in that horrific literature uh maybe maybe <laughs> you have some
3: ideas this is the stuff that keeps me up at night you know and drives me to drink Is like how did this happen i mean yeah. seriously it's just pathetic um yeah. one of the interesting things and this is my husband's theory about every man's battle is The problem with it is it lets good men, it makes good men feel like they're sinning when they're not, but it allows bad men to excuse their sinning because it's like, well, every man does it. And so it lets, you know, it lets bad guys off the hook. And I think that's a huge part of it. I think, I think in the evangelical world we really are into the objectification of women. We really want men and women to be completely different because if we can show that men and women are completely different, then there's a reason that we have male-only leadership. If there aren't gender essentials that are different, then there is no actual reason for God to say that men need to be in charge. And so they have to have absolute differences between men and women. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is we just have such an anti- intellectual and anti-science bias in the church. So if you look at the people who wrote Every Man's Battle, you have Steve Arterburn, Fred Stoker, and Mike, Mike Yorkey. None of them are qualified to write on this. Steve Arterburn, I think he has an MA in education or something. Like he's not a clinical psychologist. Fred Stoker has nothing. Like they, they, they have no credentials in this area whatsoever. And they don't cite any peer-reviewed they don't say anything actually they have zero footnotes in their entire book so this is all their own thinking um and that did not raise any red flags and that's because we live in a culture in the evangelical church where science just is not thought of highly in fact it's it's highly distrusted uh and so a lot of our other bestsellers like love and respect for instance written by a guy who was a pastor. And yes, he has a PhD, but it, it it's in, I don't know what it's in, like communication or something. And his his thesis was on what makes a good father. And he had 300 evangelical fathers who were all white in his, you know, just, just sort of an interesting aside, but whatever. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, and, and then you have, you know, someone like Gary Thomas writing a ton of marriage books. He's only a pastor. And not that there's anything wrong with being a pastor. Pastors are very well equipped to write about the Bible. But just because you're an MDiv does not mean you know anything about the sexual response cycle, or about sex, or about marriage, or about parenting. But we have let people, and especially men, teach us about that without expecting any credentials. And I think that's a large part of it.
1: Whereas you often see uh, the opposite happen when a, when a woman tries to speak on something, it's uh, hey, what gives you the right to speak on this? What are your credentials? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the credentials card is always used against women, but never against men, interestingly. Yeah. Um, so in, 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 that, in that light, I mean, maybe, the, maybe this is too simple of a question, but I'd, I'd love to hear kind of your specific thoughts on this what what do you hope these two books will do as they're being dropped into this into a culture that where there's a lot of people with like really really twisted views and really really horrible perceptions of their own sexual desire and like associating deep kinds of shame with uh, their own desires and like you know they're visual noticing that as you mentioned earlier noticing that people are beautiful um who you know struggle with um, you know, women who struggle with uh, orgasming during sex because their husband doesn't know anything about female anatomy and maybe <laughs> doesn't care about her enough. Um, <laughs> so, like, I mean, what what are some of the practical things, the specific things that you hope that these books can do? And and in that sense, as a, as, a, as a side question as well, who are these books for? Who do you who is your primary audience that you would you would want these you would want X group of people to read it?
3: Well, I've said for the last three years that my whole goal is to change the conversation about sex in the church. I just want to change the conversation. It's been way too tilted towards male entitlement, and it's not tilted enough towards real intimacy and oneness. And so with The Great Sex Rescue, which came out last year, which we already talked about, what I was doing was I was tearing down all of the bad teachings. With these two books, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, we're building up. It's like, what would sex look like? if we just simply built it healthy from the ground up? And that's what we're trying to do. So physically, emotionally, spiritually, what would sex look like if we just built it healthy? And I would love it if these became the bridal shower books. The Good Girl's Guide, the old one really already was the bridal shower gift. Um, I'm hoping that the new one will keep doing that and that that more guys will get a hold of that before they're married. But they're also great, you know, if you've been married for a while and things just aren't, working yet or you have more questions. We've got discussion questions in the back where couples can use them together. But I think about, I think about the verse in Ecclesiastes three, where it says there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones together. And I think we were scattering a lot of stones with the great sex rescue. And now I'm just trying to scatter and I'm trying to build them up and say, okay, here, here's what it looks like. If we're going to be healthy now, let's be healthy people. Let's get rid of all this crap and let's just be healthy.
0: Yeah, so it's your it's your constructive it's your constructive Mm -hmm. proposal uh, about what what sex is like and great sex rescue was really your deconstruction of Mm -hmm. of everything that 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 preceded it. When we were talking about the departmental ads and things, it, it, it sort of reminded me in a, in a weird way of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, um, thinking about this idea of how Mark Driscoll would basically kind of conceive of marriage in ways that would sort of suggest that sex within marriage was sort of the um, holy version of porn or the sort of mm-hmm. sanctified porn or the porn that that you're allowed to experience or something like that. And I sort of was wondering if there was something along those lines kind of going on with sort of the departmental ads where it's sort of like this sort of, uh, you know, here's, here's the, here's the good kind of porn. Cause it doesn't involve, I don't know, nudity or whatever, but I don't, I don't know if there's anything there, but thinking that they're sort of like trying to find sanctified ways of engaging with porn, you know, mm-hmm. inside and outside of
3: marriage. Sometimes when I read some of these sex books, I feel like that's what the author's are doing it's like they're just trying to get hot like they just want to be hot and they feel like they missed out on so much because they're christians and so like let's figure out how we can just get hotter and you know we answer a lot of questions like what do you think of this particular sexual act or that one like we've got a lot of those questions in in the books and we tackle them and that's fine um but i you know to me the bigger question is when you're asking you know is this okay is that okay does it build intimacy? Is this building intimacy or is it taking away from intimacy? And the answer might be different for different couples on a lot of these things. But if we're simply trying to trying to make things hotter, then it can just sound weird and icky. <laughs> like, like, you know what, when you're totally vulnerable and comfortable with each other, you're going to naturally try more stuff and it's going to be more fun. <laughs> okay. But also what studies have repeatedly found is that the people who enjoy sex the most and it feel the most sexually fulfilled are those who are the most emotionally close, you know? So it's not just about pushing back the boundaries. It's really about growing into it That's why makeup sex is a real thing, right? Like, you know, you have a fight and then all of a sudden you want to jump each other. And it's because you have, you've spent an hour or two talking about your deepest feelings and you've bared yourself to each other and that is what often fuels desire and so if we can do that without fighting like that's even better (laughs) But, but as you're vulnerable as you're emotionally vulnerable then that is often what what really gets people hot and I think when we have too much of a of a view of sex where it really is only about the husband's physical release then we can start trying to sound like Christian porn light, and that's just kind of pathetic.
1: <laughs> so I'd love to contrast that uh, porn light, or to this, you know, bad form of biblical porn light. Um, in in your in your book, uh, in the guy's book, you have uh, the chapter "Adding Some Spice," um, and in which you you talk about uh, you deal with specific issues, specific kinds of sex acts and uh, sex toys, etc. There's I suspect, uh, not that I've interviewed uh, people, so you can tell me if this suspicion is wrong, uh, but I suspect that a lot of people who already have difficulty with feeling shame associated with their sexual desire, who go into marriage, have, have a hard time expressing uh, their their sexual desires, what they want to explore with their partner, um, and uh, that the communication is already off, obviously, if people, if there's a massive orgasm gap. So I suspect there's also like a, do we want to try this? Do we enjoy this? Whatever kind of communication uh, issue as well. So how uh, can people develop confidence in, you know, speaking with their spouse about, um, Hey, like we should try this or not try this, or I don't like this, or I'm not comfortable with that or whatever. Uh, because I th- I think that the way that you addressed it in the book was not like try all these hot things. Let's get hotter, like as, <laughs> as you said. Like, hey, here are like things that you can like explore, and like you should talk to your you know spouse about that, and you know mm-hmm. like try these things. Don't try these things, and you got to be careful if you're gonna try this. You got to be careful about not doing it this way or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, can you just uh, talk about that section of your book? And because I just want to redeem the the porn light thing that we
2: were talking
1: about and contrast it with your better chapter which is chapter 16 I think yes
3: so okay one of the one of the things that I really want people to understand is that we have the bare minimum and then we have okay now let's add extras and the problem that a lot of couples get into is they're like okay let's figure out all the spicy stuff before they figured out her orgasm piece and before they have figured out the intimacy piece So if he's one of the 50% of guys who's still currently using porn, 50% of married evangelical men who's still currently using porn, that needs to be dealt with first. Like we're not going to spice things up while he's using porn. Okay. That, like that needs to be done. We need to get rid of the pornified style of relating no spice. Sure that, yeah. <laughs> we need to make sure that she's regularly reaching orgasm. Like for him to start saying, Hey, I want to try all of this freaky stuff when she's not even having fun yet. That's just, that's just, not appropriate. Right. So like you got to meet the bare minimum first. So before we even talk about spicing things up, it needs to feel good emotionally and, and physically for both of you. And then the way that we tackled it is just look, you know, a lot of people ask us about these things. Hey, I'd like to try this and then sure. But just think about it this way, as opposed to Y'all need to be doing all this freaky stuff to have fun. Like, (laughs) I think there's really a feeling in the church like, the world, the way that we win the world to Christ is by letting them know we have really super hot sex. And so let's all have really super hot sex. So the world's jealous of us. We're not going to beat the world on how super hot sex we have. Okay. We might have higher sexual satisfaction, but I really feel like reading some of these books, they think that what the world, like, that, that, you know, hey guys, we're not, you know, we're not uptight because we use vibrators too. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not, it has not an evangelism tool. I don't
1: know. And the secrets of their hearts are disclosed and they fall on you their know? knees and then declare God is among you.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so I just think we need to look at this differently. And, and, and so the way that we phrase the spicy stuff is first of all, consent, all right? Everything needs to be consensual. And can, and we need to make sure that we're building intimacy, not taking away from it. We need to remember that everything's permissible. It's just not that everything's beneficial. Paul said that twice, he must've really meant it. So like, you know, it's not a question of whether or not a lot of this stuff is sinful. It's just, is this building into your marriage or is it taking away? And, and a lot of things like for masturbation, for instance, It depends on the couple. So you can't really say an absolute no or yes because the Bible doesn't say an absolute no or yes, and that's not applicable. But what we're hoping to do is just give people um, sort of tools and principles that they can then work through themselves, as opposed to me telling you, standing over your bed saying, don't do that. That's too freaky. Like, yeah.
2: So, as a final question, um, going back to the whole um, how like white boomer men dominated this conversation (laughs) for so long. Um, And how their experience, perhaps it could be their own personal experience, kind of dominated the writing in their books, because, you know, writers write about what they know, um, if it's not based on outside research. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I'm just curious, um, because like this space about like sex and evangelicalism has been dominated mostly by white, like older white men, um, where the place who don't have even the proper credentials to talk about it. Um, I wonder what the place is for um, women, which I'm glad that you're writing about this, but also people of color, because I think culturally Mm -hmm. there are some things about sex that work in some cultures and not in others. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just wonder where the place is for more women and people of color who actually do have the credentials, to write about sex and um, be a part of this conversation?
3: I would love to see, like like the question that you asked earlier about single people, I would love to see a lot more research on... Um, you know, issues of yeah, masturbation, um, sexuality, et cetera, for single people, especially. I think women have a lot to say in that, especially because there are more single women in the church than there are single men. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for that. I I, I just think we need more people talking about it in general. You know, um, I was listening to a podcast from 2015 that Emerson Egrich did. He's the author of Love and Respect, which which literally scored zero out of 48 on our rubric of healthy sexuality. And he said, that you can't tell if a woman is turned on, that there aren't signs. And so the best way to turn a woman on sexually is to not try. And instead you should vacuum to get her in the mood. And, and, and in his book, um, he, like I said, in his entire chapter on sex, he never once mentioned that a woman could feel pleasure. And he, he even said, why would you deprive your husband of something which takes such a short amount of time and makes him so happy? And anyone who's really into sex is pleasurable for women would not brag about what a short amount of time it takes. So this is just a lot of it when you think about it is embarrassing. And the fact that no one told him that's embarrassing <laughs> is really quite um indicting of our celebrity culture and that's true of almost every bestseller that we have um, is i think the authors are revealing way more about themselves like the rental car in the gym parking lot than we ever wanted to know or gary thomas in his latest one talking about makeup brushes on your testicles like i just didn't want it sounds that. like a
1: personal problem <laughs>
3: It's just, again, hashtag oddly specific.
1: (laughs) Audience of one there.
3: if you want to go out and buy dollar store makeup brushes but there's a way to talk about it that isn't icky like you know and I, this is, here's how i would do it explore different senses on all the different erogenous zones you know get try things like makeup brushes scarves ice cubes feathers whatever it, like you can you just give lists but don't say like <laughs> don't and this is where we just need people who know how to talk about this in a non creepy way because there's a lot of creepy stuff in a lot of books in a lot of books too. And I think younger people are better at that. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm i not even that young, my my, <laughs> but <laughs> but younger people in general are are better at that. And I would love to see some more voices, especially from single people, writing about this too.
0: Well, Sheila, thanks so much for for joining us. This has been a wonderful and uh, eye opening and and just super fun conversation. Uh, We've all had a blast and we just really enjoy having you on and, and glad you came and joined us again.
3: Thank you.